0: To unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ may be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Thanks,
1: Britt. Mm -hmm. Let's pray. Father, tonight, as we come to your word, we are eager to hear from you who we are and to know the reason you created us, and the reason you put us on this earth, and the reason you died for the sins of humanity. Lord, give us an identity that causes us to live in liberty and to be set free from slavery. Teach us to run hard for you. We pray in your son's name. Amen. So, as you guys, I think most of you know now, that we are now in week three of a series called Identity. And Identity is an important topic because a lot of people, and if you guys missed the first week, I highly recommend you listen to that one because it was better than JC's message. And, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But, uh, but this is going to, this might turn into something not good. Um, it was foundational to what this whole thing's about. Why does identity matter? What is identity? And essentially, what we said is that an identity is what we visualize our purpose for life as. Our identity is a statement to others and to ourselves that this is who I am and this is what I do. And so it teaches us that this is. How we function when things happen, because this is who I am and this is what I do. And to summarize, what Paul's doing here in Ephesians 1, the first 14 verses, is he's telling a story. It may not seem like it on the surface, but as we dig down a little bit into the words and connect them, we see that Paul has the story of Israel in his mind, and he's using the story of Israel not just as a mere history lesson, but as an illustration of what's happening to us at the present moment in Jesus. And this story is setting up context for our identity. So what we saw as we briefly overviewed that in the first message and JC hit it up a lot in his second message was that we are a community of life in a world of death. That's the Christian's identity is that we're a community of life in a world of death. So now we're going to come to verses 7 through 10 is our focus this week that in him we have redemption okay so regarding this whole identity thing um Margaret Avison who wrote something in the book we're going through on Wednesdays come on out come on out Wednesday um she said this join Kim she said this oh yeah Anyone who reads this book, being Ephesians, loses forever any belonging that he thought defined himself. So what Margaret is saying is that when a person goes through Ephesians and grasps the story Paul's telling here and the message that he is interpreting the story with in the passages that follow, you grasp that. You obtain an identity that makes you forever forget whatever you previously defined yourself as. You realize, oh my gosh, I am bigger, part of a bigger um, thing than I ever thought I was a part of. And that my identity is so much more worthwhile and has so much more purpose than I ever knew. So, okay, really quick. What's the story that Paul's telling here? The story opens up with creation. You guys notice in verse 4, it says that before the foundations of the earth, he's bringing us right to the very beginning that God chose us. Now what does this choosing mean? The choosing is bringing to our minds what every Jew knew Abraham was. He was chosen. I want you to remember back in Genesis, the world is running in chaos. God had to flood the earth. And when the water is resided, it's still running in chaos. And these people are building this tower in defiance against God, saying, Heck with you! We're going to make our own thing. And then out of the midst of this chaos and rebellion... The next chapter, Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham. Abraham wasn't worthy of this election. In fact, he was a pagan, just like everybody else. But God chose him. And when he chose him, Genesis 12 says, Abraham, I'm choosing you so that I can, through you and your offspring, Israel, bless this cursed earth. It's cursed with death and exile. And I'm going to use you and your people to reverse all of that, to bring life, restoration, and blessing. And that is in verse 3 here. We see that Paul says, Blessed be the God Father who has blessed us. So we see this theme of creation, of Abraham and election, of blessing. And then it, it ends towards the end with inheritance in verse 11. And verse 14 talks about glory. As JC pointed out, the whole thing ends in the glory of the renewed heaven and earth, which we just call heaven typically in our churches, and that glorious inheritance to come. The eternal heaven. So, here's the story. But in the very heart of the story is verse 7. And it says that in him we have redemption. Whatever that means. By his blood. This Is part of the story that Paul's telling. Creation. Abraham and blessing. Well, guess what happened to Israel? They too. Like creation. After this election of blessing. Began to downward spiral. And they end up as slaves in Egypt. Under evil Pharaoh. This is a realm of death. There's no life happening. There's no blessing for the world. Things look bad and bleak. Is the promises of God going to stand? Is he really going to bless us and the world through us? Doesn't look like it. And in this prison, they were slaves. In this prison of death, God comes, sends Moses, and delivers them out of their slavery... Through the blood of the Passover lamb. That is the story that Paul's invoking in our minds as he says, you too are redeemed. That means released from captivity through the blood of Jesus. So from slavery to liberty is what he's saying. And what we're going to see is that our identity is going to be focused in this passage on this word redemption. And what happens is that our redemption, our liberty, our setting free from slavery, our redemption liberates us to participate with God in his plan. That's why you're redeemed. We often think, you know, because this is what we do, the evangelist comes up. You're all sinners! But Jesus paid for that. So that you could go to heaven. Let's pray. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Shortest one ever. Um, That's often what we hear is that you were redeemed so that you can go to heaven. But actually what Ephesians is telling us here in verses 7 through 10 is that you redeemed so that we could know the mystery of his will and thus join God in this plan. The plan, which verse 10 says sums up, is that he's going to reunite heaven and earth back together. That's his plan and that's the reason you were elected and redeemed. As JC pointed out, election has nothing to do with Calvinism and Arminianism. And if you have no clue what I'm talking about, save yourself a headache and don't get into it.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: right? <You're gone. laughs> yeah. no. But essentially, you've heard of predestination, and that's the whole issue. It's people like, "What? God predestines some to hell and some to heaven? Ridiculous!" And yeah, maybe that is ridiculous. But that's not what it's saying. He's not electing you to heaven and hell. He's electing you to participate in this program of reunifying heaven and earth. That's why you're redeemed. So, okay. In order to see this in its power, this participation of reuniting heaven and earth, that identity, what does that mean? We need to just briefly step back to the beginning like Paul does. We need to go back to the foundations of the earth. And work our way up to the Exodus story, which is where we'll find ourselves. Okay? So, I brought da, 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 da. illustrations. Yes. This is our ghetto flat screen TV. It's flat, <laughs> and that's all it is. <laughs> so, okay. Now, we're going to start in Eden. And you guys know from the History Series a lot about Eden. Eden's the ideal. Eden is also what heaven's going to look like. The Garden of Eden. We just wrapped that up a couple weeks ago. I want you to picture two circles. One is... How's this going to look for you guys? Okay. One is blue. (laughs) One is red. The blue is the sphere of God. The red is the sphere of man. In other words, the blue is heaven... The red is earth. The the proper spheres for God and man, right? Now, what made Eden so wonderful... Yes, it was lush with life and things were great and there was no war and there was no parents telling him what to do and <laughs> no teachers bossing him around... That was great and all, but what made Eden so wonderful, Eden means delight, is that the two spheres of earth and heaven, man's realm, God's realm, were actually met together and living in this marriage, this perfect harmony, so that as you're walking on this earth... You're not experiencing what we experience with death, pain, and exile, and this distance, and this, like, who am I, and this conflict with people, and wars, and famines, and hurricanes, and whatever blew up the East Coast, and what's going on in Israel right now. You weren't experiencing that stuff. You were in this perfect harmony. You were literally in heaven, but you were on this earth at the same time. That's what made Eden so wonderful. Okay, so what's the result? The life of God in heaven with the life of man on earth means you live. There's no death. There's no exile. There's no curse. There's blessing. There's unification with God himself. So, when the red circle and the blue circle meet, we have the purple sphere of Eden. Those are our two circles, but they're just put together. That is what creation was. It was a unification. There was no, there was none of this exile, divorce, and separation. All was at harmony. All was right. As you know from the history series, as short as verse, uh, verse, as short as sermon number three, we found out that something bad happened. Adam rebelled against God's kingship, right? And here's what's crazy: man is rebelling against God. Life, the sphere of heaven with earth and the sphere of man. We're united. But man says, "Mm, I don't want to be in this realm anymore. I want to set up my own kingdom. So, what happens is, heaven and earth separate. They divorce. And there's great pain, tragedy, and death that result from this divorce. So, this is what we have at present. See that? We're separated. And that's why earth is this cursed place. That's why we moan and groan and we have pessimists and preachers in the Bible, uh, Ecclesiastes, that say things that are weird and uh, things like, you know, because we're experiencing the the way things aren't meant to be. And, you know, this is personally why I think that the Bible speaks against divorce. It's not just so that God can be a boss over us, but because divorce is mimicking the rebellion of mankind. And it's separating what God meant to join together. And you guys might remember in Revelation, it talks about the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven to this earth. And it says, adorned as a... Does anybody know their Bible there? Adorned as a bride. Why? Because heaven is being remarried to the earth once again. That's what's going to happen. We're going to be purple again. Red and blue are not going to be separated. It's going to come back together. And that's what we're waiting for Christ to return to do. Um, So that's the rebellion. Now, what happens is that God, in the midst of this... Great divorce calls down, calls to the earthly sphere and calls Abraham and says, Abraham, I promise that through you and your people, these fears are going to meet up again one day. That through you and your offspring, Israel, it's going to come back together. And so as the promise is made, the two spheres begin to move ever so slowly back together. And then we come to redemption. And that's what we find in our passage. Redemption. What happens in redemption? In redemption, the circles have begun to merge. You see the the overlap? It's kind of purple in there. (laughs) You still have two spheres, but they're overlapping on the edges. Everyone see? Okay. Hey, okay, I teach a high school Bible class now, so... I'm ruined. <laughs> um, that overlap is what's happening in God's people. That overlap is what happens in redemption. It's what happened in the Exodus. Okay, we have this realm of curse, exile, death, that's earth, and this realm of life, restoration, and blessing, and in the Exodus... The separation is very obvious, but God comes down to visit his slaves in Egypt, and they begin to merge together. How? Why? Where do we see that happen? We see that happen when Moses comes to Pharaoh, and now you see this clash going on. And Moses is able eventually to deliver Israel from the grasp of death, from the grasp of Pharaoh. He redeems them and liberates them into life. How does this happen? Well, Pharaoh is stubborn. He's saying, this is my kingdom. You're not going to let them go. I'm holding on to them. They're my slaves. But finally, it's when God says, okay, 10th plague is here, Pharaoh. The 10th curse is here. The angel of death is going to soar over, kill all the firstborn. But Israel lived. Right? I know this might be a recap for a ton of us, but Israel lived because they took a lamb, slaughtered it, took its blood, painted it on the doorposts, and all within the homes that had the blood on it were spared from the curse of the angel of death. They were, in a sense, blessed. They were given life when all of Egypt was getting death. And it was through that blood and in that moment that Pharaoh said, enough, get out of here. And they go. Slavery ends. The realm of death is over. And they move on through the Red Sea into life. And as they're going, God is leading them to the promised land, the inheritance we see in verse 11 through 14. They're moving on to the place that God promises to bless them in. And before they get there, they make this stop. God comes down on Mount Sinai, gives them his law. But here's the important thing, is that in the midst of all that, God tells Moses to create a tabernacle. It's really this just this really big tent in which God himself came and dwelt within the tent with his people just like he did in Eden when he lived with his people. And so here's the congregation of Israel as they're gathering around this big tent, this tabernacle, and God's living inside of it. You see what's happening? The realm of heaven and earth have met precisely at the place of the tabernacle. That the marriage has begun. The overlapping has started within God's people, Israel. And so they are experiencing not just this world of curse, death, and exile. But this, this, this fear, they're, they're getting into it. This, this life, this blessing, this restoration with their creator and their maker. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that this is our very same story, is what Paul is saying. Is that you two were slaves, not in the land of Egypt, but you were slaves to death. Death mastered humanity, still masters much of humanity. When you guys to look at chapter two, verses one through three, where this makes this like daylight clear. It says, You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. See that prince of the power of the air? That's a word for Satan. Satan is like Pharaoh. He's mastering these dead people. They're all following what he wants them to do. The spirit that is not work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's imprisonment, that's slavery. And a slavery to death underneath the reign of Satan himself. That is the realm, that's the red realm of man. The realm of Death. And that's what we were slaves in. And God sends Jesus to die on the cross as our Passover lamb so that we are liberated from that slavery and we move on into liberty into the new sphere, the sphere of God. While we're on the sphere of man, the earth, the overlap has begun in Jesus. And just like Israel in the wilderness, on the way to the promised land, we are in the wilderness on our way to the promised land that we call heaven. And while Israel was on the way to the promised land, God met them in the tabernacle and he went with them in the tabernacle. While we're on our way to the promised land, God has met us in the Holy Spirit and goes with us in the Holy Spirit. This is our story. We are liberated. That's what it means to be redeemed. We are a community of life in this wilderness of death okay but some of you guys are thinking at this point "Mm, the idea of redemption sounds good but quite frankly I feel like Christianity is a bunch of rules and slavery I think I would be much more liberated if I was not in the church and I got to go do what I wanted that's liberty right liberty liberty do what I want (laughs) I know I know We hear a lot of messages. We see a lot of whatever people say from the Bible that makes it feel that way. In fact, I was just talking to some friends (laughs) that were saying things like at at the youth group at their church, um, the pastors basically harp on don't date, don't go to bars, and don't get drunk and stuff. And I'm thinking, yep, I want redemption from that too. And that's not what has happened to us. When the Bible says that you're redeemed and liberated from slavery, this should be the best news you've ever heard. So, I need to clarify for you what redemption means, okay? This is what you need to understand. It's what we were redeemed from. Well, let's start over. What you're redeemed as. What does it mean that you're redeemed? What happens? Okay, so you're a slave, but what are you now? Another slave? Another slave? What were we redeemed from? A good party to go work in our backyard and pull weeds? And then third, what are we redeemed for? What's the purpose of this redemption? So, let's go through this. What are we redeemed as? Number one, you are redeemed as royalty. JC's passage last week told us this in verse 5. That you were adopted... As sons and daughters of God. So you were these slaves underneath Satan's rule in this realm of curse, exile, and death. And God redeemed you out of that. And he didn't just say, okay, you were a really bad slave in there. Now you're coming to my realm so you can serve me and do things for me. As a lot of people preach. Go do good things for God. Make God look good. And we think, okay, so for one, slavery to slightly better slavery. Yeah, woohoo. Verse 5 says that you are redeemed as adopted sons. And listen, gang, when a rich person in the Roman Empire adopted a son, the son inherited everything the dad had. Okay, we're talking about the creator of this universe adopting us who were slaves. You are moving up the ladder and inheriting the biggest real estate the universe has. Which is dumb to say because it is the universe. We're inheritors of the earth, which God is coming to restore and bring heaven to. You eat at the king's table, not digging for scraps underneath the table. I think Psalm chapter 113 puts it well by the way this is a psalm they sung at Passover. So it's an Exodus psalm. It's celebrating the very thing we're talking about, and this is how it puts it. Psalm hundred and thirteen verse five. It's also a Gunger song, so who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on heavens and earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap, to make them sit with princes with the princes of his people. You see that, that transition from the dust and the ash heap? That's death. To eat with the princes of his people. That's life. You know song? Who is like the Lord? Okay. I don't remember the rest. I totally blinked out on the rest of it, so I will not want you to tempt the rest. That's why I stopped. And then, okay, so by the way, but when God did do the exodus and brought Israel out of Egypt, you know what he called them in Exodus 4, verse 21 and 22 and 23? He called Israel, my son. He redeemed them from slavery because they're his children. They're his adopted people. And that's what we are. And so it's the same picture. We're leaving the slavery of death. So that was number one, redeemed as royalty. Number two, we're redeemed from slavery. Now, I know I've been saying that, but I'm going to show you now what this means in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness, you know what that word means? Often we think it means this, I have this huge pile of bad things and it gets knocked over. Forgiveness, yay. Um, That's really good, I understand, but it doesn't really speak of liberty, does it? It, it really does actually do you know what this word forgiveness means in the Greek I'm not going to tell you it's definition because it's kind of corny and it's not always accurate what I'm going to do instead is tell you how Greek writers of the time used this word you know like I don't know Greek writers I was going to say Homer but he was significantly before this time so but you know Greek people this is how they used it in their writings. They use this word forgiveness to refer to being released from debt, being released from punishment, and being released from captivity. You know, what forgiveness means is it means liberty. It means you are enslaved, and something happened that took the chains off and said, "Go, my people, live, find your identity." Guess what? The Septuagint. Let me let me give you a quick little lesson, okay? <laughs> The Septuagint, okay, this Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but around the time of Jesus, a little before him, they decided, most of us speak Greek now, so let's change the Hebrew Old Testament to Greek. And that's what they did, that's called the Septuagint. So why way that's helpful for us is so that we can look at forgiveness in the New Testament and see how forgiveness was used in the Old Testament through the Greek Septuagint. You follow that? If you don't care, whatever, you can just forget that. But um, that's what I mean by Septuagint. The Old Testament uses forgiveness in this way. (laughs) All from Leviticus 25. It uses forgiveness to mean release, liberty, and catch this. Jubilee. Do you know what jubilee means? Jubilee was that great every 50 year celebration. Where people who were in debt had to sell their homes and become slaves, were forgiven. The debt was removed. And if you sold your home, on that 50th year, you were allowed, by law, to move back in. If you sold yourself as a slave because you couldn't afford to live, you were, by law, allowed to be set free. And if all these debts were hovering over your head that kept you in slavery and out of your home, it was just removed, and you could go back and start life anew. That's what jubilee means. That's what forgiveness means. We were captives that were released. We had debts that were paid off. We were removed from our homes and we've been brought back. Our home being a relationship with God. Being in his realm of life. That's what redemption means. So, what about this word trespasses? It also means liberty. (laughs) These trespasses, okay, some of your translations would say sin it says in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses some dumb this down and just translate it as sin which is honestly not a good translation trespasses are sins but trespasses specifically are a type of sin okay you know there's inadvertent sins where you're just like wandering through life and you're like oops I thought a bad thought (laughs) or sometimes we just lie and it's just like you weren't even premeditating it but we're just such compulsive liars it came out Or you just got angry at your friend and slapped him. I saw a slap fight a little earlier tonight. It was weird. (laughs) Or we just say stupid things to people and cut them down. Like those are inadvertent sins. It wasn't like we sat there and debated for hours whether we should do it or not. But trespasses refers to rebellion. It refers to a direct premeditated sin that says, I know what God tells me to do, but I decide not to do it. I'm rebelling like Adam in the garden against his kingship that's what trespasses means so what we're what we're um redeemed from is not some moral corruptness not some like okay i do bad deeds so i'm being delivered from bad deeds the point is you're being delivered from direct rebellion against god and rebellion against god when adam did that resulted in death right that's what separated heaven from earth You're being redeemed from death itself is what it's saying. From the rebellion that leads you to the realm of death alone. You're free from that. And to be free from that is good news. I understand if you think that forgiveness from our sins simply means, oh, I'm forgiven so I don't have to, I have to watch my life now. And I'm I'm now a moral person because I was an immoral person. And I'm saved from that. So now I'm a moral person. And I understand how... Ooh. Enslaving that sounds. Because now, like, when the emphasis on what I was saved from was morality, the focus now comes okay, so that, what, that means is I'm liberated to be a moral person. That's not what Christianity teaches. It teaches that you were in rebellion against heaven and it separated you from it, and you now live in cursed death and exile. And that what you're set free from is you don't have to live there anymore. It's jubilee. You can return to what we're meant to be in. That's true freedom. So that leads us to our third part. What are we redeemed for? You're redeemed for liberty. And this is cool because this is in verses 9 and 10. I know the the wording's really, really hard to wade through this Paul and Ephesians for you. But uh, you get the point. Verse 9 and 10 says this, making known to us the mystery of his will. So he has his plan. and He's making it known to us according to his purpose, which he set forth in Jesus as a plan for the fullness of time. And here's what the whole point is. To unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. In Jesus, God wants to reunify heaven and earth is what it's teaching us. What are we liberated for? We're liberated to make known to us the mystery of that will. That he wants to reunite all things. He's making that known to us. As Eugene Peterson puts it, when it talks about mystery, it, what it's saying is the inside story of the way of God does things that bring us into the story. I really read that wrong. Let me just say that. The inside story of the way God does things we are being brought into. That's what it means making known the mystery. There's this plan, this this cosmic plan for the world, for heaven and earth, and he's reuniting them, and he's letting you in on that plan. You know what that means? You're not a slave. Slaves were never let in on the plan. They were never called to participate. They were commanded to perform. And you didn't have to know why. It was just, do it! This is liberty, that we are being called into the planet God to participate, to bring heaven and earth back together. What this means is you and I are gap bridgers. This gap, the white between the red and blue, which is very ugly, is turning purple in the church. We are the gap bridger, and that's what's happening in our midst. And that's what we mean when we say this is a colony, a community of life in a world of death. We're bridging heaven and earth back together. So, I'm going to finish this with an illustration. Some of you saw on Facebook, the title of this message is Slavery, Identity, and the Silver Chair. And those of you who read C.S. Lewis know what the silver chair is. So, I think you might know how this fits in. Go sell those things, guys. (laughs) Um, If you guys have read The Silver Chariots, one of the last books in the Chronicles of Narnia, what happens is you guys know King Caspian, right? Well, Prince Caspian, as the movie has him, but he turns into King Caspian. And King Caspian's ruling Narnia. And he has a son named Rillian. But Rillian one day goes missing, mysteriously. Nobody knows what happened to him. You know what happened to him? The queen of the Underland kidnapped him. And so Rillian is held as a prisoner in the Underland. This whole universe underneath the ground, underneath Narnia. And they have this wicked plan. This queen has captured Rillian to lead her armies, which are a bunch of gnomes and things, not the blue ones, but... They're much uglier in Narnia. Um, they're leading this earth man army, this gnome army, to dig underneath Narnia so that they can come up out of the earth and swarm Narnia, take it over, and Rillian will become the queen's little puppet to rule over this kingdom of death. Okay, so how does she do this? Well, Rillian totally forgets who he is. She casts this spell, this enchantment on him that makes him completely forget that he is the son of King Caspian, that he belongs in Narnia. And so he sits there being brainwashed that he's a servant of the Queen of the Underland and that he's to carry out her plan to undermine Narnia and take it over. (laughs) Now, this is where the silver chair comes in. There's a little loophole in the spell. Every night, the spell would wear off, apparently. Because Rulian would go crazy. He would remember who he is and would start ranting things like, Aslan, save me! I am the son of Caspian! I am the king of Narnia, the rightful heir to the throne! And the witch knew that this was dangerous. So the queen of the underland, the witch, knew that she had to shut him up so that he would never get out. So when the spell began to wear off, she would chain him to the silver chair. I don't know why it's silver, but it was. And at that split moment, when Rillian remembered who he was, he couldn't do a thing because he was enslaved in the silver chair. Now, the story gets good when our heroes, Puddleglum, Jill, and Eustace, you guys know Eustace from Prince Caspian. He's not as much of a brat in the silver chair. But they come and they free Rillian from the silver chair. They smash that thing to pieces. They kill the Wicked Witch. Well, almost. As they smash the chair and Rillian's free, the spell is temporarily worn off. He knows who he is. He's like, I belong in Narnia. I am the son of the king and I am the rightful heir to the throne. Then the wicked witch comes in. She's like, oh, you want to go back to Narnia, huh? And she tries to enchant him one more time. Tries to seduce him into this state where he forgets who he is. And things begin to happen. All of them begin to forget Aslan. They begin to forget Narnia. They begin to doubt that it ever even existed. They're forgetting their identity. But in this bold moment, Rillian says this. <laughs> Once he's released from the silver chair and he's in front of this Queen of the Underland, he says, Now that I know myself, I do utterly abhor and renounce your wicked plan to do villainy. That's his actual words. Now that I know myself, I want nothing to do with the Queen of the Underland. Get me out of here. Give me escorts now. And really knew his purpose in life. He knew where liberty lay because he knew who he was. Christian, you're a son of a king. We talked about that adoption. We were bound to the silver chair and we didn't know who we were. Death had this spell over us where we just think, this is what life is all about. Eat, drink, and get drunk, and have fun, and seek pleasure, and be, what's the word? Hedonists. and we're locked down in the silver chair and that's all we know but what redemption means is that the silver chair has been destroyed you are able to stand up the spell broken and come to that moment where you say now that I know who I am I want nothing to do with Satan's plan And I want everything to do with God's plan to reunite heaven and earth together. I am a gap bridger. That's my identity. And that the world of death may see and cross over to life because we exist as a community of life. We come together and celebrate redemption. We are the purple where the circles are overlapping. That is what we are, and that's what we've been redeemed for. So, Christian, the minute we forget our identity is the minute you go back into slavery. You sit in the silver chair and waste your life and scream and hoot and holler about what am I doing. But when we realize who we are, when we have our identity, it translates into liberty. And you realize that I'm not part of some little controlling God. I'm part of this big freeing plan that's seeking to free all of creation. A plan that makes me free because it's bigger than me. So, we are sons and daughters of the king and when we've, we realize now that we've been elected as gap bridgers to bring heaven and earth together everywhere that we are to start restoring people to life. That is our identity. That's what you've been redeemed from slavery for liberty and to participate in the unification of heaven and earth. Let us pray. Father, we come asking for a fresh view, a fresh awareness of our identity, that we could all rise tonight and say, now that I know who I am, now that I know myself, we want nothing to do, with death, curse, and exile. But Father, we we stand here and lift our hearts. Well, I stand and we sit to lift our hearts. And say that we desire the liberty of participating in the unification of heaven and earth. And that you use us as your gap bridgers in whatever way you see fit. Primarily through this group and this community. And then also through us individually. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.